Hello, and welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 118, Redeemed. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And first of all, let me thank all of you who sent me greetings and blessings on my birthday. My wife threw a surprise party, and some of you were there in San Antonio, and it was a grand weekend, and we read so many of those blessings that you sent. Thank you. And I want to return tonight to Psalm 107, where we were last week. And let me read it again. It begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Okay, that's enough. Um, as I said last week, it's a tremendous psalm, and it would I hope that you've read the psalm to see how that all unfolds. And we have seen that this word loving kindness is the key word to understanding the covenant that God the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit has made with us. If you go through the Old Testament, and really even the New, um, you will not find very many direct references to the word covenant. But you will find this word loving kindness all over the place. And it's loving kindness that is the covenant word that describes the life of a person, you and I, who are walking in this now moment in covenant with the Father through Jesus the Son, through His shed blood of the everlasting covenant that is made real in our life by the Holy Spirit. That walking in harmony with God by His initiative of grace and givingness of His very self, that is loving-kindness. That is the love of God. It is the, what is in in John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's it, loving kindness. It is the love of covenant. It's the love of commitment. It's the love that says, until death do us part. Loving kindness. But now that loving kindness, how does it work out? Because it's, it's the word that describes two persons or two parties that are walking, living in this covenant relationship. How does that work out in life? And there are many ways. Whenever you see the word loving kindness in the scripture, especially the Old Testament, you will uh, sooner or later find words like doing loving kindness or keeping loving kindness. And th- this showed up in the family relationships, in the families, the clans, the tribes of Israel, because they could not imagine life. In fact, they did not imagine life apart from covenant. And so it was not only that they were in covenant with God, but that caused them to understand they were in covenant with each other. And so you you had an ever-extending ripple effect that they were in covenant with God, but that meant that within the members of a family, each member of the family was committed in covenant love to the other family members. It was not a a weak and shallow, I love you. It was understood 
and it was as I there was no other possibility to them it never entered their head they, it was a covenant commitment and it, it extended the extended family and then families with other families and so all of Israel was locked in together into this word loving kindness they were a people of the covenant a covenant with God but also with each other and specifically in their families now there is an ancient custom and I have lived alongside of Jewish people in in London and also in New York and I have actually seen some of this custom worked out it's a fascinating custom that was buried in the law and was again buried in the families out there in the uh, highlands and lowlands of the tribes of Israel but you don't hear very much about it Uh, this ancient covenant custom what was part of the drawing of these families so close together Okay, what was the custom? It, it zeroed in on this word redeem or redeemer. And that throws an awful lot of light on the fact that all the way through the Bible, God calls himself the redeemer and he calls us the redeemed. And I say again, it comes from this most ancient custom buried in the families of Israel. Let me try and explain it to you. Um, The word redeem in the Hebrew language is goel, G-O-E-L, goel. And it means literally a kinsman or a near relative who is my rescuer, who is then my redeemer, which basically means that, rescuer. The one who comes in to rescue and if finances are involved the one who ransoms me who pays my debts but the the heart of the meaning he's my close relative and my close relative who through our covenant relationship would be the one to come and rescue me ransom me and redeem me now this is fascinating to me that God makes himself, he calls himself the Redeemer. He is the Goel. And that immediately alerts us that whenever this word is used in the Old Testament, it was to those who used it a mystery because they would have to question, how can God be my close relative? And yet they understood full well that he fulfilled everything that a Goel, a Redeemer, did. And so it hung there, the mystery, waiting for Jesus to come. So let's look at it even closer. I said a Redeemer, the Goel, he was a close relative. But I have to extend on that because here's this close relative and he's in covenant and therefore is one who is looked upon as it's his covenant duty to fulfill all that a goel must do in terms of redeeming but he had to be able it would be no use just in the little bit i've already said but wait a minute um, to to fulfill the duties of the goel the redeemer you, you had to be a close relative, flesh and bone, but, but you also had to have the ability to fulfill those duties. And if you couldn't, it had to pass to the next nearest relative, who would be then the next Goel in line. Um, but also you had to be willing because, as I shall show you in a moment, it was an enormous burden to take upon oneself uh, to fulfill the duties of the Redeemer. And so you had to be a close relative. You had to understand I'm in covenant with my brothers and sisters. 
and I have to have the ability to my hand to fulfill this duty and I must be willing to take upon me the burden of this which could last for some time. So what is it that the Goel had to do? Well, let, let me spin it out. Number one, he was the avenger. And again, you'll find that word somewhere here and there among the, the scriptures, both in the historical books and in the Psalms. The avenger. That is, he was the one who, if someone comes to hurt me, the bully on the block, the enemy who wants to take my property, well, my Goel will be my sort of big brother on the playground. You touch my brother and I'm going to get you. You touch my brother, you touch me. That was what a Goel would say. And if it proceeded, he would come and stand with you. And his resources in terms of ability to fight off an enemy or deal with the enemy, however it came, all would be made at your disposal. He was your goal. He was the one who watched over you and was ready to avenge any wrong that was done to you if you couldn't do it yourself. And also, in that same um, category, if the little brother uh, would be murdered then it fell on the Goel to avenge that murder. We, we are talking of very primitive days. We're talking of tribal people thousands of years ago. Um, there, there was no FBI. There was no police force. If someone murdered your relative, then it came incumbent upon you as the Goel, the Redeemer, to avenge the blood of your relative, and you'll find that, I say, through the scripture. That, that, that was a goal just for the starters. And you can see what I mean. You have to have the ability, you have to have the willingness. But also, and this is very central to the idea of the word redeemer, they were the ones who were called in when you had got yourself into so much debt there was no way out. The only way out would be to sell your land. But you see, the land in Israel was the gift of God. I don't know if you realize this, there were no realtors in Israel. Because if you read the book of Joshua, God gave to every family in Israel a piece of land. Right there in Joshua, it's marked off what, what they get. It's their inheritance, the gift of God. He said, this land, I'm deeding it to you, and no one can take it from you. It's yours. Can't go around selling it, you see. And, and, and so now you've got yourself into debt, and, and it, it looks like you're going to lose your land, and that cannot be. And so you would call upon your goel, that he would come in and he would pay your debts. If necessary, he would take over the land to keep it in the family until you would come to such a time as to be able to have it back. Well, he had to have the ability, the financial ability, to take your debts and to make sure that the land stayed for you to live on. But then, and maybe this is the biggest of all, supposing that the person who, who needs a goel is a widow. And th this is where it, it really comes home. Because uh, in Israel of the days in which we're speaking, if you were suddenly widowed, there was nothing. I mean, there were no government programs. You were left to the mercy of your relatives to look after you, and, and you were left really without very much hope of a future. 
especially if there had been no male children to carry on the name. And so the Goel, his covenant duty was to marry the widow of his now deceased brother in order to bring children that would bear the name of the deceased brother and continue the inheritance. I say, that was a heavy thing, (laughs) that a man is now called upon to marry his sister-in-law with the deceased husband who was his brother, um, he, I say he's got to be able, but at this point it moves beyond covenant responsibility to a very deep covenant love that he is going to take this woman. And, and so there's the custom. There's lots of ins and outs to it. It's, it's all laid out in Deuteronomy 25. But, but in, in that custom, there's one more thing. Supposing you don't want to do these things. You, you, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't want to spend my money on you. I don't want to come and pay your debts. And quite frankly, I don't want to marry this woman. Um, and I, I know that it's incumbent upon me under the covenant to, to look after the widow of my deceased brother. I know that, and I know it's incumbent upon me that his debts are my debts. And yes, but I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, I, I don't really love. I, 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 don't, I don't really like this woman, and I, I, I don't. I don't want to. No, I don't want to marry her. And I really, I don't care what happens to your land. Now, what happens? Well, there is a way out. He goes, summoned to the elders of the village, what's going on here? And he would say this to them, I I don't want to go through with this. And at that time, the woman, the widow, who has now been told publicly he doesn't want to marry, doesn't want to fulfill his covenant responsibility, she would take his shoe. Why, Why would she do that? In front of the whole town and the elders, she would take his shoe, which would say this man has relinquished the right to walk on my land. He's told me I'm on my own. He will not walk on my land. He has no authority anymore on my land as a relative. And then she would spit in his face. And he would be shamed before the whole clan as the one who would not care for those who were his closest relative. That's all in the Bible. And he wouldn't be known thereafter, and it depends how you translate the word, but it would be something like old barefoot because she had his shoe. Or he would, another translation could be, the one without a sandal. But he he would bear that, that he had not fulfilled the covenant responsibility. And in fact then had condemned the widow, the family, to poverty and maybe slavery and whatever. Well, I've taken a, a long time to tell you about that, but believe me, I think it's worth it. You see... We, you and I, were created back in the Garden of Eden. Adam was introduced to the inheritance of mankind. For Adam was indeed mankind. We were all wrapped up in Adam. And so he was introduced to the inheritance. What is the inheritance? What well, what is this that God has given to us out of sheer giftingness of his heart, out of, as the psalm says, the Lord is good. Out of God's goodness, he made us in order to be good to us. He made us specifically to be his beloved and to shower us with his gifts. What are they? 
well, that we are made in his image, which means that although made out of the dust of the earth, and thus share that dustness with the animal creation, but we are totally other than and elevated above the animal creation in that we're made in God's image. We're made to be the kin of God. We're made for fellowship and relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that, that right there is inheritance, which means that we are to walk, live, do our work in the consciousness that we are the beloved of God. We walk inside his love, knowing that he is for us. And that heaven, which is all that God is and all that God wills, his pleasure, the treasure house of who he is, heaven, is available to earth. And so part of our inheritance is to walk in heaven on earth. And you could sum that up in shorthand by saying not only walking in the love of God, but walking in the peace of God that has no, uh, nothing on earth to compare to it. It passes human comprehension, complete and utter peace peace of spirit, peace that dances with God with no barriers between, no sense of guilt or shame. You're at peace with God and your, your emotions. Peace. So that you wouldn't know what worry is. You don't know the meaning of the word anxiety. It hasn't been invented by the devil yet. And joy which of course is not happiness, for happiness can quickly become unhappiness. But joy, there is only joy, there is no such thing as unjoy. And so joy and peace, righteousness, which means walking in harmony with God, being his beloved, in a given but by sheer grace, you, you, you are given this relationship with the Holy Trinity. And your inheritance is the earth. So you are to be the Lord of the earth, the Lord of creation. You could call it God's vice regent, under ruler with all the resources of heaven to back you up and to bring heaven into earth. And all of that as you are specifically in union with the Son of God, the one we know as Jesus. That was our inheritance. Or another way of putting it, it was for that reason that we were created. Or to put it another way, that's the meaning of being alive, to apply all that I've just said to everyday tasks, because all of those tasks can only be done by one who is made in the image of God. So there, there, there's, there's nothing lowly to do. There, there's nothing done that we call by that hideous word secular, which actually means the place where God is not. No, we, we were created to do all of our tasks, whatever it is, in the consciousness of doing it inside of God's presence, empowered by his love, energy, and wisdom, and understanding. Now, into that situation, follow me carefully now, comes Satan. Satan, who's been given names by Jesus, preeminent among them, he's the liar. And Jesus said, it's not merely that he tells a lie, he tells a lie because he is the lie. There is no truth in him, the liar. 
and the one who comes to us, the creature who is beloved of the Father, he comes to us to steal. I'm quoting Jesus, John chapter 10, that, that the, the, the Satan comes to steal. He's the thief. Everything that God is, he is the giver. Everything Satan is, he's the taker. He comes to strip you of everything that God would give you. He is the destroyer. Everything that comes in the hand of God in creation, Satan would destroy that, shred it, take it down. And said, Jesus, he's the murderer. He came to introduce the human race into death so that their new life would be death. That would end in the final collapse of the body, death. And on the way to that would be disease because Satan is the liar, the thief, the destroyer, the murderer. And he came into the Garden of Eden laying claim to us. He would have us for himself. And he would rule this earth in place of the human that he would deceive with lies. Lies that I've talked about many times with lies and deceit he brought mankind to actually hand the inheritance over to him sin is madness mankind are of their own choice deceived by Satan became his captives to do that, that is to obey the lie, they had to disobey God. And they had been warned, love warned them. If you go through that door of disobedience, you're, you're cutting yourself off from life himself. And therefore, beyond that door of disobedience, there is only death. And when it works out, Satan had legal right over all who disobeyed. No, no, it wasn't that the Father punished us. It was you go beyond that door and you walk into Satan's territory. You give yourself because you've disobeyed God. You've obeyed Satan in your seeking to be independent. And now you are his legal captive. He holds the key of death. And he keeps you there. What you call life, if you only knew what life was, you'd realize this is walking death. It's death. Now, what does God do? Maybe you've never thought of it like this before. But he comes to the Garden of Eden. You remember he says, Adam, what did you do? And Eve, and then Satan... And when he comes to Satan, it's in Genesis 3.15. It's the beginning of the promise of the gospel. But how? what form does it take? It takes the form of the Goel. It takes the form of what I've been talking about, the Redeemer. What does he say? He said, the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, just a, then that means he's going to be of the human race. Yes. The seed of the woman who shall be a member of the human race, which means he will be a near kinsman of us humans. He'll be a relative of us. He will share in our flesh and blood and bone. Yes. That was the very first words that God ever spoke to humankind in sin. He said, one of your own kind, one who is a near relative to you. 
the seed of the woman shall what? He shall crush the head of the serpent. And the head is looked upon in scripture as the authority. And in the case of a serpent, the head is where the poison sack is. God said to the couple, one of your family, your relative, he shall come and he shall take the authority that the Satan has so wickedly stolen from you. And in so doing, he shall neutralize the poison of the snake. It was the goal. You see, you've got to please understand this. So many people don't get it. Why didn't God say, well, I'll just save you. I'll blow Satan away and I'll come and save you and get your senses. No. For many reasons. But he doesn't. What he does say is that there shall be born of a woman. Which, of course, if you know the way the Old Testament reads in Hebrew, that is unique. It doesn't occur again in the Old Testament. It's always the seed of the man. But this one shall be born, the seed of the woman. Not that they could ever grasp it at that time, but right there in Genesis 3, it is telling us that this one who shall come and shall strip Satan of his authority and crush his head shall be born of a woman without a male. He shall be born of a virgin. It was right there. And then it begins to come that this one who is coming spoken of as the Redeemer, the Goel. In fact, God takes the name to himself in all the fullness of the Godhead. I'm, I'm your Redeemer. I am your Goel. I am the one who shall avenge you of the one that came and lied and stole and destroyed and murdered your very spirit. I shall avenge you, God says. I shall avenge you. What's he saying? I'm one with you against Satan. Oh, do you get this? God loves you and is with you against Satan. Why is it you're afraid of God? It's because Satan, this is biggest lie. No, God's on your side against Satan. The, the, the greatest event in the history of Israel, which is a further illustration of this, is the Exodus. When Israel, who were the people who carried that seed of the woman within them, one family within the people of Israel that were in Egypt, one family there ultimately would end up being the Virgin Mary who would bear Jesus. See, his genealogy was in action there. And, and Pharaoh, who very interestingly, the crown of Pharaoh of Egypt was a snake that was coiled around his head in gold. His crown was the head of a snake looking at you. Interesting. He saw himself as God. They, they worshipped thousands of deities and had put into slavery the people who carried the news of salvation. And you remember Moses was sent. Well, what's going on? God said to Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. He said, when Egypt touches my people, they touch me. And I'm sending you in as my representative. And whenever they speak of that in the books of the Bible to come, they say God was redeeming Israel. What is it? The big bully that was sponsored by Satan who wore the snake around his head had grabbed hold of 
the people of God and put them to slavery. And God says, you've touched my people. And I am coming to get my people out of slavery. And you remember the scene. Moses comes and he says he's the representative of the God who is known as the I Am. And the I Am, in Hebrew, Yahweh, says, let my people go. The Goel has come to deliver the people, you understand, to avenge what Pharaoh has done. And Pharaoh sits there with a curl of his lip and that golden beady-eyed snake around his head. And he said, who is this God, Yahweh, that I should listen to him? Well, Pharaoh, you're going to find out that the Goel who comes to redeem his people is a lot bigger than you. And one by one, in the most magnificent fashion, which one day we'll have to go through it all, we call it the Ten Plagues. But, but really and truly, it was the ten major key deities of Egypt, one after another. Everything Egypt worshipped, everything they called God, went smack on its face. And God showed himself to be Lord over it all. Right down to the very last one, Pharaoh thought he was a god. And he's faced with devastation until Egypt lets them go. And even at that point, it shows that death itself must be conquered. And they went out not only by the power of their Goel, their Redeemer, but by the blood of the Lamb, which was tied in with that. For God was saying, when, when it really happens, it will not only be power, it will be power that is gone to death and bloodshed that redeems my people. Does that help you understand those Old Testament stories? And then he goes on, especially Isaiah. If you want to get a hang of this, read especially the second half of Isaiah. Um, and there you will read over and over he says I am your redeemer I am your redeemer God says it but the mystery of that how God could say he's our close relative only came into light in the birth of Jesus and that's when we understood Genesis 3.15 that's when we understood that the Goel given to the entire human race in the Garden of Eden born of a woman born of a woman but then all through the Old Testament the Redeemer has been God himself and Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary but he is not only 100% authentic man he is also 100% God the Son God has joined the human family God has joined our family please understand this don't see Jesus as floating five feet above the ground totally unrelated to us doing fantastic things and then off to heaven no God came in the person of Jesus and joined the human family and he'll never leave us so that even now in the heavens Jesus has a human body He's the guarantee that we all will join him with a body like his body. But he came. So what, what does it mean? It means he became our kinsman. He became our close relative. Oh, I could go on for hours on this. I've got to bite my tongue, pull myself back. He, he came. And in the human family, he is the Goel. He is the Redeemer, the Rescuer. And is there ever such a one to fulfill the requirements of the Goel 
For I have one now who is supremely able to be the Goel because he, God the Son, is the creator of all that is. Without him there was not anything made that was made. Or Colossians 1.15, all things were made by him, visible, invisible. So, this one human being who is God, limiting himself to being a creature, that one individual sums up the whole of the human race, in fact, the whole creation. And upon him comes the Holy Spirit who is the fullness of the power of God. So here is one who is able, who is empowered with a strength that is greater than Satan's. But also he has come into the human race by love for which we really have no word in any language of earth it is such a vast unfathomable love he came because he loved us he came able because he's the creator and holder together of all things and he came empowered by the Holy Spirit. So God the Father says, I love you, and I'm sending my Son as the Goel. And the Son says, Father, I go because I love you. And the Holy Spirit says, and I'm coming upon him and be with him because I love you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves you. And therefore, Jesus is here. He is loving-kindness come among us. Yeah, but you see, Satan, Satan deceived us into sin, disobedience to God. And sin took the law and became bound in a new way to trying to keep the unkeepable and the law then only showed up sin condemned the sinner and made him all the more hopeless and the end of that under the authority of Satan was death and Satan could look at God and say they're mine they chose to come through the door of disobedience they're mine and all that they have is mine I can take it the thief I can enslave them I can destroy them they're mine they gave themselves that's why Jesus came to face that was the great enemy that was the murderer and Jesus came to avenge he came to take us out of death and to bring back our inheritance and to wipe out the debts that held us there and in fact to strip Satan of authority to neutralize his poison everything the Goel had to do but how does he come? Let me say it again, not as God blazing like the sun, but he, yeah, I, I'll have to use it. He snuck into the human race. Uh, weakness, a babe, but the virgin's breast. But in that chosen weakness is the strength of God to redeem his whole creation and he faces every temptation 
he faces Satan himself and emerges as the first and only human being to say no to Satan. And written across his entire life is a new word, obedience. He did what the Father willed him to do. And so he walked in that love and he lived in that peace and that joy and he is the righteous one. And therefore Satan has no authority over him. Do you get that? He joined the human race and was the first real human. Because you see, sin is not an attribute of being human. Any more than cancer is. Any more than the flu is. They, they are bacteria, they are disease that invade the human. But you don't have to have the flu to be a human. And you do not have to be a sinner to be human. In fact, a real human is not a sinner. Jesus, the first real human who really walked with his Father. And he shows that he is the Redeemer and speaks the words of his father who has ever described the triune God as redeemer. You remember that? I think it's in the book of Isaiah isn't it? Where, where it says, He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Ever got anything in your eye? Just a speck. And it, it touches the apple or the, the, the deepest part of your eye. You, you realize you can't do a jolly thing, can you? You stop doing whatever you're doing. You, you, your entire being is centered upon that little minuscule speck that has got to the apple of your eye. God says, that's you. You to me are like the apple of my eye. Let the whole of darkness be on notice. Do not touch. You, whoever touches you touches my eye, says the Lord. Jesus came into the middle of this. And it says he bound the strong man. That is Satan. He, he had the ability to bind Satan's ability to terrify and torment and enslave people. He came upon sickness, disease, deformity. And you remember, he, he came at it, and the word that's used the time is compassion, which means love with anger. Love, anger that says, no, you will not stay in this condition. I have come to rescue you. It's love rescuing, but rescuing with, with, with a... A beautiful rage says, you won't stay here anymore. And so he healed the sick. When the leper said, if you want to, you can make me well. And in our Bibles it translates it, I will be made clean. But in its way we can't say it in English except with sound. It, it, it really translates as, of course I want to. How, how dare you think otherwise? That's what I'm here for. And the goal, I am come to get you out. I am come to pay your debts. And I am come to release you from the torments of the one who has captured you. And to finalize, he chose to enter into death. Remember, Satan had no authority to take him. He enters by choice into death by the shedding of his blood. And he goes there as our representative. So if the wages of sin is death, if disobedience means death, Jesus said, I take the responsibility for your disobedience and I'm going into death as your representative. You'll never have to go that way. But when he's there, Satan has someone in 
the domain of death that he has absolutely no authority to hold there because that person is sinless. But he comes representing us, the sinners, and declaring in the very guts of death that we are forgiven and all our debts are cleared. Satan is the illegal holder of Jesus. And Jesus stripped Satan of his authority. And in the power that is infinitely greater than all the powers of darkness, he blew death to pieces. In the death of Jesus, death died. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we all walked out of the tomb. We with Jesus were raised out from death. Satan had lost and legally lost his authority over us and lost the right to hold the human race in his darkness and misery because the Goel had come right where the enemy was and stripped him by the shedding of his own blood and by the power of his resurrection. It's the ultimate exodus. He is the blood of the Lamb and the power of the resurrection greater than all the powers of the plagues. And Jesus comes out of the tomb and believe me, you came out with him born again, born anew so that you could look back to what was, which was unforgiveness, condemnation, guilt and shame and bondage. And now that's over. That died. That was left in the tomb. And you are raised with Christ. Alive. In union with the Father and with the Son in the Holy Spirit to be restored to your inheritance to walk in union with God so that Jesus said in that day you will know that I am in the Father but you'll know that I am also in you and you are in me we are joined together or you could say back to the goal we are married and I am going to bring forth fruit through you you are no longer alone and lost no longer in the poverty of having debts that you can never pay but you are set free you are forgiven and you are alone no more we are joined together as one love fulfilled love satisfied and my life shall now come forth through your life. You know, in a strange kind of way, we can take that ancient custom right to its end. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus, using that custom that I talked about. In the resurrection of Jesus, Satan lost his shoe. He lost his right to walk upon our inheritance. He lost his right to say, you belong to me. And he lost it forever, for there was no going back on that custom that I talked of. Rather, we are joined to Jesus, who in turn is joined to the Father. But also, Satan has been everlastingly shamed. There's something of the spit in the resurrection. You know, in the earliest church, well, I say earliest, it went on for a good few hundred years, and I think there are still some places today that do so. When a believer is baptized, 
which in the earliest church was your entrance into the church. At baptism, you went through a list of your confession of faith as it applied to you and, and your renouncing and declaring crucified with Christ. And, but it ends with that you renounce the devil and all his works as you declare you're now free from Satan and darkness to enter into your inheritance and you use those words as you stand in the water of baptism you say I renounce Satan and all his works and at that point in the earliest church they would spit to the west it's where we get our expression the wicked witch of the west it was where the sun went down. It was the place of darkness. And they would spit to the west. As they said, I renounce Satan and all his works. The holy spit of baptism. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know if he goes back to this custom. But it's interesting. Satan lost his authority to walk on our inheritance. And... He was eternally shamed, exposed for who he really is by our Goel, our Redeemer, and we are in him. And so says the text, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You are redeemed. Look, if the last hour has meant anything at all, I hope you know you are redeemed. You are marked with the blood of Jesus. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit because you are joined into Christ. You are not of this world any more than He is of this world. He said that. It says that you have been translated out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the dear Son of God. And it says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, it is peace, it is joy in the Holy Spirit. You walk in His love. And so we respond to that with extreme joy. Oh yes, extreme joy. If you've ever seen just the tip of the iceberg of who you really are because of Jesus then you'll know real joy. In the Old Testament, and of course they didn't know what you know, but they saw the day coming, and Isaiah, in chapter 35 of his prophecy, and verse 10, he says, The redeemed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And he was talking about you. That was a prophecy of you, as you are in Christ Jesus. It's who we are. It's the essence of worship to stand before this God and say, you planned this and you did it. What a God. What love. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say so. Don't just think it. Sitting in your religious pew looking so miserable. He said, say so. Jump if necessary. Shout if necessary. Realize this is what God has done for you. But then turn inward and go running through the corridors of your being. Announce it to the extremities of your person. I am redeemed. And let your feelings know that when they contradict you. They've got no right to contradict you. Feelings hormones good grief do they control your life no it's the word of the lord and the word of the lord says you are the redeemed of the lord so say so announce it i'm redeemed i have the right to the inheritance that is mine through jesus christ in fact it says you're a joint heir with Jesus. you share the inheritance of jesus 
And when the enemy's darkness encroaches you, look straight through the darkness to God your Father and joyfully announce, I'm your redeemed child. And in the name of Jesus, forbid the enemy, for therein is your authority. Remember, he lost his shoe. And this is the good news we proclaim. Well, there it is. My time is totally gone. I trust this blesses your heart. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your Redeemer. May He bless you, open the eyes of your understanding, and grant you the wisdom and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I bless you, and that is the way it is. Amen.